hey, it's not every Sunday you get to talk about Judas and satanic possession. So that's our, that's our subject matter today. We got that to look forward today in the text, but preach through the Bible verse by verse, they said. It, it's good and edifying, right? And it is. All scripture is profitable for man. And so, including this. And so, um, that's where we are. All right. Let's see, we're going to start um, kind of an odd place, but um, we're going to pick up in verse number 18. So John chapter 13, verse number 18. I'm not speaking of all of you, Jesus said. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table and Jesus, at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you trusting and believing that the words that we have spoken are true, the words that we have sung are true. When we sing cornerstone, that the weak is made strong. As we stand upon that cornerstone, as we abide in the Father's love. And Lord, that's what I pray now, Lord. I know certainly for me and my flesh, I feel, I feel weak this morning. So I pray to a God and to Jesus whose Holy Spirit power is stronger than fatigue and stronger than ADD and stronger than these present trials and stronger than whatever we may be going through. And may as we read this text and as we spend time in it, may be a reminder of your power and may we not run from you, but may we run to you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So let me get for you just kind of a, the big idea for, I believe for the text, as well as for, um, for the sermon. This is kind of where we're going to be um, heading. And it's this, that Jesus knows all things. 
and has power to use all things. So those are two attributes of God that we're bringing together. It would probably just be fall under the, the, the category of the attribute of God under God's sovereignty. We would say this, that Jesus knows all things, but it's one thing to be omniscient. It's one thing to know all things, but not only does Jesus, not only does he know all things, but he also has the power to use all things, everything. We see here in this text is he is using even Satan himself. Think about that for a Even Satan himself, Jesus is using in order to accomplish God's divine purposes, God's divine plan. So he's, he's using them. He knows them. He's using them. So here's what that means for us. Don't run from him. Rather, run to him. That if Satan can, if, if Jesus can use Satan, if Jude, Jesus can use the disciple who was about to betray him, Judas, then he can use the mess you've made in your life. That's what this means. If he can use that to accomplish his divine plan and his divine purposes, then he can use anything that nothing, nothing that Satan or simple man can, can throw at Jesus, can thwart the purposes of God. That even Satan himself is subservient to Christ. And God uses Satan's attack through Judas's betrayal in order to accomplish God's plan that was set in motion before Genesis 1 ever became. It was set in motion when, when God said, you know, let, let there be light and light appeared. That's when the, what we're seeing here, this plan unfolding, that's when it began. That what we see here is that what was said in, uh, about Joseph and his story in Genesis 50, 20 is coming true here in the life of Jesus. What was said of Joseph said that what you meant for evil, God has meant it for good for the salvation of many. And the same thing is happening here. What has been meant as evil coming against Christ, God is using it. God is actively using it for, as we would say, for God's glory and for our good and for the salvation of many. And the same thing is true about whatever it is in your life if you don't run from him, but run to him. That's the key. Let's look at the context. Let's just kind of walk through the, the story. Jesus has, as we were saying, it's, a, it's Thursday night. For those of you, just to be aware, it's, a, it's probably, you know, late in the evening on Thursday night, and Jesus will be arrested in the wee hours on Friday morning. So, as John concludes in the story by saying, and it was night, in the daylight Jesus would be arrested and the night has now come. And so it's Jesus's final hours are here on this earth. It's Thursday, Jesus has gathered together with his disciples. They're in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. He's brought them together. They're celebrating the Passover meal. They've been arguing about who's gonna be the greatest and who's gonna be on the left and the right of Jesus and all of these sorts of craziness. Jesus is just as a demonstration of the, the marks of the church. Jesus has just washed their feet. The church is gonna be marked by humility and love and sacrificial service. And Jesus has shown that to them by washing their dirty, stinky, nasty feet. And he's commanded them now, you're gonna go do the same. And they're eating this feast together. So when Da Vinci, I think, it's, I think I said Michelangelo last week and I got my, my artist wrong, but when Da Vinci paints the picture and it looks like all the guys are on one side of the table and, and they're smiling for the camera, right? They're posing for a picture. That's not how it happened at all. They actually took a selfie. 
No, they didn't take a selfie. They, they didn't have cameras. And neither did they have tables like that's pictured in, in the painting that da Vinci painted, that it wouldn't have looked like that at all. And in fact, it wasn't a, a table as we would think of it. It was probably a, more of a U-shaped table. And then the table would have been close to the ground and Jesus and his disciples would have been sitting on the ground at the bottom of the U, Jesus would have sat there, which would have been the place for the host. So Jesus is taking the position as the host. And then disciples would have been on each side of Jesus and scattered around the table. John, the writer of this gospel, is on one side of Jesus. And John refers to himself here as the disciple that loved Jesus. I guess John, as the writer, is taking a little bit of liberty, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to give himself a nickname. And if you're going to give yourself a nickname, that's a great nickname to have, right? I'm the one that Jesus loves. And it's true. It's true about all of the disciples. In fact, we saw that last week in the text. Jesus loved all of his disciples all the way into the end, all the way to the fullness, all the way to the max. But John takes a little bit of liberty. Like I said, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, got freedom here and says, I'm the one that Jesus loved. And so John is there and he's reclining as, as John paints it. And he's like, he's falling kind of back onto Jesus. On the other side of Jesus is Judas Iscariot. And then Jesus predicts, in the midst of this, Jesus predicts his betrayal. And Jesus tells his disciples that his betrayer is in the room. It's one of them. And the disciples are surprised by that. And on the other side of John is Simon Peter. And Simon Peter leans over to John and whispers into John and says, ask Jesus who it is. I think it's indicative of Simon's heart. I want to make sure it's not me. Who is it, Lord? And so John leans over and asks Jesus, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, it's to whom I will give this morsel of bread after I have dipped it. So unleavened, unleavened bread, so bread without yeast as part of the Passover. It would have been commonplace. There would have been bread in the place. And part of the, part of the tradition probably would have been the, um, they would have mixed up, taken maybe some, some dates and some olives and some nuts and mixed all of this together and then poured olive oil in it and kind of made up a mixture like some Italian restaurants. Sounds good, doesn't it, right? Like Italian restaurants do and then take the bread, the unleavened bread and break it and dip it. And in fact, it was even... One commentator said it would, have been, it would have been commonplace for the meal, the feast to begin by the host doing this kind of as a rite or a ritual of taking the unleavened bread and offering thanks over it. And we even see a little bit of this in the Lord's Supper and breaking it apart. And then what he would have done was he would have, the host would have taken a morsel of the bread, a piece of the bread and dipped it into this mixture of goodness. And then he would have handed it to, to the guest of honor in the place. And what Jesus is doing here, even in this by tradition, is Jesus is saying to his betrayer that you are the guest of honor here. In fact, the seat, the place where Judas is sitting, it's the seat of honor. And Jesus is honoring Judas here. Judas is on his side in the seat of honor. Jesus is Jesus' betrayer is also his most distinguished guest in the room. Let that sink in. Oh, the heart. Oh, the heart of our Savior, Jesus. That when Judas, when Judas goes and betrays Jesus and goes and gets the, the chief priest guard and they go into the, 
they go into the, um, the garden that's in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus. Jesus will greet Judas, and we'll see this, I think it's in John 18. Jesus will greet Judas by saying, friend. Fully aware of the sin that is in Judas's heart and what Judas is doing, and yet Jesus will refer to him as his friend. He honors him. He lavishes his love upon him, even in the midst of his betrayal. Paul writes in Romans, the second chapter, he says this, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And I say that to you today. I I underscore that today to you because we sin. You and I, we sin. And oftentimes we hold on to our unbelief and we refuse to repent. And oftentimes we find ourselves drifting into lukewarm affections and half-hearted devotions towards God in our, in our worship and in our disciplines and even just with real affections in our heart, right? And when we sin, we always do it against the flow of God's love and God's grace. That when we find our hearts drifting, our affections waning, we do it in spite of a father's love toward us, in spite of a savior's great love that he has towards us. One of my favorite preachers, authors is a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that sin is always at first, it's always a betrayal of a father's love. And every sin that you and I are tempted to do and every sin that we conjure up and every sin that we find ourselves doing, it is at first, in that temptation, it is at first a betrayal of God's love toward us. And we see this even here, Jesus knowing full well what is about to happen, Jesus knowing full well what Judas has conspired. And yet Jesus invites him to sit in the seat of the guest of honor. Jesus takes, he dips the bread, he hands it to Judas. Judas takes it and John says this, that Satan enters into Judas. And Jesus responds with a command, Judas, go and do what you gotta do. But here's the deal, do it quickly. What you were going to do, do it quickly. And Judas eats the bread and leaves the room John tells us that the disciples, they still don't understand. They, they still don't get what's happening. It would be easy for us, right, to, to kind of get what's happening because we've been reading the book of John. We've been walking through. We are kind of more familiar with the story. Like, have you ever watched a movie with somebody who's familiar with the storyline of the movie, but it's your first time watching and they start laughing before the joke is told and they say in all the lines, like sometimes as readers of the, of the Bible and people who know the storyline of what's happening, we can do that to the disciples and think, are they so blind? Are they so ignorant? I mean, this, what this really shows is, is two things. One is the hypocrisy that's in Judas because it's not like they're like, hey, we know who it is. And also we see here also the friendship that they, these men had with Judas. They've just spent three years together following after Jesus. Nobody says, hey, I knew it. I knew that it would be Judas as Judas leaves the room takes the 11 by surprise. And what happens here with the, with the handing of the bread and the entering of Satan and Judas leaving the room is this is in effect, it activates the first step in the death of Jesus. Judas is the trigger and Jesus pulls the trigger in that moment. And as I said, John closes out with, and it was night. And Judas Iscariot will never see daylight again. 
Judas Iscariot will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He will go and, as, uh, like I said, in John 18, we'll get there. He'll, he'll find some, some soldiers and some of the guards from the chief priests and they, he will lead them to Jesus as Jesus is praying in the garden and they will arrest Jesus. And shortly after that, Judas will be filled with guilt. He'll go back and take the 30 pieces of silver and throw it in the floor at the temple, but it will be too late. And Judas will go out and he'll hang himself. And Acts 1 gives us even a better detail that probably what happened was the rope broke or the branch broke from where he was hanging himself and he will fall and be split in two. Now, three application points for us as we look at this story. What does Judas's betrayal of Jesus and even satanic possession, what does that teach us? Three things. Number one, Number one is that Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but I want you to think about him as the, the two descriptors, let me give you, that the Bible gives to Jesus. Number one is in the book of Isaiah, before Jesus ever comes, he is called, he is called a wonderful counselor. And the second is given to him in um, in the book of Hebrews, when he's called our great high priest who makes intercession for us. Folks in the room here today, some of you have been betrayed. Some of you, you've had your love scorned and rejected. You've been stabbed in the back by a loved one, a spouse, a friend, a family member, a parent, possibly a child, someone, and here's the deal, that pain that you feel, Jesus knows the unique pain, the unique heartache that that brings. Jesus knows it because Jesus has felt it. Jesus's heart has been hurt like that. So when you go to him and when you pray to him, you can know that he feels what you have felt. He has been where you have been. He knows the uniqueness of that, that Jesus will ascend into heaven where he will sit on a throne where he is reigning and ruling and interceding for us. That Jesus is in heaven right now with real, with real power and with real sympathy and with real compassion and with real emotion because he has become human. And because he has subjected himself to a temptation like you and I feel, because he has subjected himself to weakness like you and I feel, and because he has subjected himself, he did not subvert heartache like you and I feel. Jesus, even though knowing everything, knowing where this going, this hurt his heart to see one that he called and invited in and taught and lavished loved upon and lavished honor upon and to have him stab him in the back. In counseling, we, uh, we learn about um, the levels of, uh, as, as a, the level of understanding, this is the way it's, as the level of understanding increases, our level of engagement as a counselor, it too should increase. So the levels of engagement that we're speaking of, the levels of engagement are this, there's the, the emotion of pity. And that, that means to acknowledge that about your suffering, or I mean, yeah, to acknowledge that you were suffering. And so someone can come into the room and as a counselor, I can acknowledge and feel pity upon them and acknowledge that they're suffering. 
But there's a second greater emotion that we can feel as counselors, and that is the feeling of sympathy. And that is to say that, hey, I care about your suffering. Not only do I acknowledge that you're feeling real pain here, but I, I care about you and I care about your suffering and I'm, I wanna hear your story so that I can speak into that story. Then there's a third level and that's a level of feeling your suffering. This is one that is um, especially important for counselors who too have been abused or who too have been hurt. And what they say is I not only do I care about your suffering, but, but I feel what you feel because many times I've, I've felt that emotionally. I've gone there. I've felt like that. Number three or number four is compassion. And that is the feeling that I want to relieve your suffering. And over and over again in the New Testament, when Jesus would see people who were hurting, scripture would then follow up. It's all throughout the book of Luke. Then Jesus filled with compassion. Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, he has gone through all the feelings. It's not just that he has pity for those of us who maybe find ourselves hurting, for those of us who may find ourselves being betrayed. It's not that Jesus just feels pity. It's not even that he feels sympathy, empathy, but he's, he's filled with compassion. He knows. He knows what it's like. My favorite uh, Christian authors, I mean, writers, I'm sorry, singer-writers, is a guy by the name of Rich Mullins. He died in 1997, tragically in a car wreck, saddened by that still. But Rich Mullins wrote uh, just a number of Christian hits in that time. And some of his music is still around uh, kids. You can YouTube him if you don't know who he is. He's great. And Rich Mullins would, if you would ask Rich Mullins what his favorite song was, Rich Mullins probably would have said this song that was not well known. It was never released on the radio, but it was a song called Bound to Come Some Trouble. In fact, in an interview, Rich Mullins said, I actually wrote that song for my children and tragically was never able to have children. I wrote this song for my children because I wanted them to know about the God that we serve and the God that we love. And here's some of the lyrics. Here's kind of the chorus that Rich Mullins writes. He says, there's bound to come some trouble in your life. There's bound to come some tears in your eyes. But this is what he's, but reach out to Jesus. He knows what it's like. That's the key. Jesus knows what it's like and you'll find he's there. I don't know what enters into your mind when you think of Jesus as a great and high priest, but know this, he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to feel what you feel. He knows what it's like and you will find that he's there. Number one is, know this, Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. Number two, we can learn this here, is your passion for the church should not be diminished by hypocrites in the church. This is going to be fun. Verse 18, for real, I'm not speaking, Jesus says, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, when he's saying chosen here, he's not talking about chosen for salvation, predestination. That's not, he's saying like, I've chosen these 12 disciples. I know, I'm not ignorant of it. I know who I've chosen. I've chosen you 12. And but that the scripture may be fulfilled. Like this is no surprise to me is what Jesus said. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, verse 20, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me uh, receives the one who sent me. Now, verse 18 and 19, they, they kind of make sense. Like, you don't, you don't need me on that one other than the, the part there where I've chosen. Verse number 20, you're like, do what? 
Here's what verse number 20 is. This is the same language that Jesus has used when he commissioned the disciples and sent them out. So if you look back in Matthew chapter 10 and Mark 9 and Luke chapters 9 and 10, you will find this same language being used that just as the Father has sent Jesus, the Father in heaven has commissioned his son Jesus to come on the earth. Jesus just didn't say, hey, I'm gonna be born, born of a virgin. born." Of... No, the Father has sent him and commissioned Jesus to come out. That, you know, to, well, that didn't, to, to be here, right? His incarnation, Jesus has commissioned that. In the same way, Jesus sends his disciples. He sends these 12 men out and they are prototypes of the church that Jesus will later on after his resurrection, he will send out the church and he sends them into the world. What Jesus is saying, whoever receives Jesus receives the father and whoever receives them, these disciples, they receive the father and the son. We as the church, we are commissioned by Jesus. We're sent on mission. And the mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's to make disciples. It's to instruct, it's to instruct people about Jesus, about the good news. Teach them to observe all that he has commanded, to baptize them, right? And when people receive the message that you and I preach, they're not just responding to us. Today, if you receive the message that I'm preaching, if you receive it, listen to it, instructed by it, edified by it, sanctified by it, you're not receiving the words of Andy Lawrence. I have no power to sanctify you. I have no power, even like, like I can give you some words of encouragement, but not encourage you in your spirit, but you are receiving the word of God. You're receiving Jesus and Jesus' spirit. You're receiving what he's commissioned them to do. And what Jesus is doing here what Jesus is doing here for these men, for these 11, is Jesus is reminding them that the church marches on in spite of imposters and posers and phonies. Saying, don't let this massive defection, like this is one of the OGs, right? This is one of the original 12 dudes that's getting ready to leave. A 12th of you is getting ready to cut ties and separate and get out of here. But do not let one that I've chosen, right? One that is a friend, do not let his fall undermine the integrity of your commissioning or your passion for the church or for the mission. That Judas's hypocrisy will not diminish Jesus' ability to use his church. It will not diminish Jesus's ability to use the 11, the faithful and the true. I mean, let's be honest. People in this world, they love the story of the hypocrite, do they not? They love to pick out the hypocrite that whenever the world can find a phony Christian, the world will parade that far and wide. Whenever a minister who professes Christ brings reproach on the name of Christ through public skin, through public sin and through scandal, it scandalizes the church and the world. They, they love that. They applaud that. They love to tell that story. They love to share that story. They love to propagate that and promulgate that. I think they do it as a justification for their own sin, their own unbelief. But nevertheless, they love that. And when that occurs, as it's even occurred recently, when that occurs, we, you and I, we feel their reproach, do we not? even though we may get hurt when leaders we respect fall, and it does hurt, 
even though we get splattered by the defections of false Christians, unfaithful and hypocritical representatives of Christ, you and I as the faithful and true, you and I still have a job to do. And that job is not diminished, the power is not diminished, the mission is not diminished by those who are unfaithful and those who are hypocritical. Our job that we must do is to shine like light in a dark world. No matter who defects, no matter who turns to sin, our job still remains the same. The mission of the church still remains. That we are to not get sidetracked, diverted, thrown by a loop by the hypocrites in the church. And that's what he's telling them here. Look at two things, two reasons. Number one, he says scriptures prophesied it. Jesus goes back and chooses Psalm 41, 9. And he quotes that. I've chosen this person, but I'm choosing him as part of us to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken in Psalm 41, 9. In fact, Zechariah, Jesus isn't quoted here, but Zechariah gives us even a more vivid detail and account of what's going to happen here with, uh, with Judas. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 says this, Then I said, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. If not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30, piece, the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them to the potter in the house. Now, they probably wouldn't have done one and one equals two here. And that's okay that sometimes prophecies can be obscured. That oftentimes in the Bible, we see this even here, prophecies are given to us to be able to understand and interpret oftentimes the past more than they are given to us to predict the future. And I would say that the same thing is true about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation isn't a crystal ball so we as a church can see, okay, this is what's in the future and blood moons and whatever else. But it's really to help us to, to predict and to understand present time as well as to look back and go, okay, we see what's happening here. That's what's happening here. When Zechariah would have spoke that prophecy, even though it's about Judas going to happen, you know, hundreds of years later, he, oh, this makes, no. But as we look back, we go, okay, that's what this is about. So don't be sidetracked. Don't be diverted. Don't be thrown for a loop. Jesus is saying, but one of you is going to betray me. I'm, scripture has prophesied, but also Jesus has predicted it. I'm not speaking of all of you, verse 18. I know whom I have chosen, right? In John chapter six, Jesus asked his disciples, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you was a devil. I've chosen you, and yet one of you is a devil. This, Jesus is predicting this same thing to happen. Jesus has been predicting it. Jesus has predicted similar things, that Judas's hypocrisy, Judas's defection, Judas's betrayal did not take Christ by surprise. And neither should we be surprised when we find tares among the wheat. Neither should you and I be surprised when we find fig trees who bear no fruit. Neither should you and I be surprised to find wolves among the sheep. If you were a wolf, where would you hang out? Where do wolves like to hang out? Around sheep, right? It's called lunch. Like, that's kind of where we hang out, around the, the food buffet. There's food around, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in close part. And the same thing is true for wolves, that sheep, the true and the faithful, we attract wolves even. Healthy, 
plump, right? Sheep attract oftentimes wolves. And you and I need to be, we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. We really do. You and I, we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. And you and I, we can feel an array of emotions when a, when a, when a church leader, a trusted leader falls. We can feel an array of emotions when, when a friend, a dear friend apostatizes and renounces faith and leaves or falls into horrific sin. You and I can feel an array of emotions, but surprise should not be one of those emotions that we feel. Because Jesus has predicted it. He said it. He's prophesied it. He's told it to be so. It's not like we welcome it. We feel heartache and pain and we try to, to, try to lavish love and call the wayward back and we exercise church discipline in a loving way so that hopefully, just hopefully, they would repent. But nevertheless, one thing that we should not do is we should not feel surprised and neither can we let that stop or thwart our passion for Jesus and for his church. That our job in the midst of other people's failures other people's falls is to proclaim the name of Christ who never fails and never falls. Never fails, never falls. And I think even here we could say, as we look at what's happening in, we'll get even a little deeper into that in the next point, but as we look at it, I think to the hypocrite, to the hypocrite, the poser, the imposter who may be in the room. I think Judas's life should be a frightening example of how engaged the devil is in spiritual hypocrisy. In fact, let's go there now. Number three, as a word of warning. The word of warning is this, that seemingly small sins can make us vulnerable to Satan. Seemingly small sins make us vulnerable to Satan. I remember when I was in Bible college, they, uh, I had New Testament uh, part one. We went through the gospels. And I remember that um, one of the essay questions at the end, and it's an essay question, and it was, why did Judas betray Jesus? Now, I remembered the lecture and my professor, uh, Dr. DeClavon, he, uh, he was an outline guy. So everything was A, B, C. And I remembered that it was a four-part answer. Right? It was a, there was four parts to the answer of why did Judas betray Jesus? And I went through and I wrote all four answers like he wanted me to. And then I drew a line and started and I said, the Bible says that because Satan entered him. That's the biblical answer. I don't know about these other four things because there's a lot of speculation in there about Jesus being the Messiah and the earthly kingdoms and all that. But this much I do know, Satan entered him. But the truth is, is that Judas is more than just a, a pawn or a puppet in Satan's show. This isn't Satan's shows at all. In fact, satanic, acti satanic activity never relieves us of personal responsibility. The Bible is clear about that. Satanic activity never relieves us of personal responsibility for our sins and for our actions. Satan may tempt. Satan may work. See, here we see maybe the only case in the Bible of satanic possession. I mean, this is Satan himself. And yet we can say this, that Judas is responsible. And in fact, we see keys about this in our text. Last week in the text, we said, John had wrote that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas. So before Satan enters Judas, it has already been put in Judas's heart to betray Judas to portray Jesus. 
betray Jesus. That Matthew and Mark, they both tell us that it is Judas who goes to the chief priest and is more than willing to betray Jesus. Matthew 26, 14, Matthew writes it like this and says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. How did this work? How did Satan get to Judas? How did Satan get to Judas's heart? One word, greed. That Satan already had, Paul calls it a foothold. He already had a foothold in Judas's heart through Judas's own greed. And that's been unfolding all throughout the gospel of John. Remember in John 12, whenever Jesus is in Bethany and uh, Mary comes in and anoints Jesus's feet and breaks that uh, alabaster box of very, very expensive ointment. Who is it that freaks out and says, wait a minute, that should have been sold. That should have been given. And even in that commentary, he says, uh, who was in that commentary, John right? who was in charge of the money bag and Judas used to help himself to what was put in it. That we see Judas probably in that moment is not really cared about the poor, but what he's thinking is, if we could have liquidated that and sold that into something I could have like skimmed off the top, possibly that's what he's saying. We could have sold that and we looked at it as a whole year's worth of wages and then possibly I could have skimmed some of those coinage off of the top. The greed is an insatiable desire for more. And that's why I said, when I said that we need to be careful and be weary of small sins, that seemingly, in quote, small sins, because you and I probably would not list greed as a huge sin. The greed is an insatiable desire for more, not just money, but possibly even more power. Who knows what all is greed in Judas's heart. But nevertheless, greed seems like a subtle and small sin. Especially when you just think about the sin itself, isolated from the effects of the sin. Effects of the sin being like stealing and embezzling and robbing and running and all of those things. When you just think about just the sin of covetous desire, the insatiable desire for more, to get more, to have more. More money, more power, more possessions, more, more, more. The truth is, it seems like a fairly benign sin, does it not? And yet the Bible says there's no such thing as a benign sin. That every sin is deadly and a heinous sin. No sin is benign. All sin is malignant. And all sin, like cancer, has the ability to spread and to grow and to take take over. It's a word here for us to check our motives as to why we follow Jesus. That many of us could be tempted to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Some people may come to Jesus and see Jesus as a means to an end and who knows what that end may be. Maybe that end is happiness and pleasure. And I felt like there was a time when the church really propagated that. We really preached that. We taught that and some churches still do. There's some churches that preach a prosperity gospel message that says, hey, if you follow Jesus, you're going to have health, you're going to have wealth, you're going to have prosperity. 
There's another one that says, hey, you know what? All you'll get is happiness and joy and good feelings and butterflies and unicorns and all of that. That's all you'll have. If you just follow Jesus, your life will come together and everything's gonna be perfect. Everything's gonna be grand. And what we see in Judas, I believe, is the same thing. He, the same sin, he saw Jesus as a means to the end, rather than seeing Jesus as the end. Like Christianity, what Christianity is all about, it is all about getting. It is all about gaining. But you know what you get and you know what you gain? Jesus. And if Jesus isn't enough, if Jesus isn't enough, then you're where Judas is. You need to question your motives. You need to question your own heart. And I've been there. I can say this and preach this and say this because I've been there. Man, this week, Luann and I, we got out the eight millimeter tapes, right? The old school tapes and our old school tape player. And we've been watching our, our kids grow up over the last like over three nights this week. We've spent hours watching videotapes of Kennedy as a toddler and Grayson. I mean, the first one we put in was the day Grayson was born. And we just, we've been watching that. And I've, I've been watching me and I've been thinking like, Man, what I, what I actually thought is, do you all remember in the Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments? You remember how when Moses goes up on the mountaintop and he comes back and there's a, there's a radical change in Charlton Heston in his character. Do you all remember what it is? What is it? He, his, his beard turned white, remember? Moses, right? He goes up and he's brown, black. He comes back and it's all gray. And all of this is because I've been spending a lot of time with God. That's what's happening. It's not that I'm getting older. It's the time that I'm putting in with God, like Moses, little by little, I'm, I'm being changed into it to be like Charlton Heston. Maybe I'll get the voice someday. I don't know. But I'm, we're watching that. And this one thing I could say is, have I, as I've watched that, what, what God's been teaching me is the thing that I was the most concerned about and the most worried about in that moment, in that 25-year-old version of myself, that thing God had totally in his control and was all part of his plan. But the thing that I was the most concerned about, my number one prayer request in that moment that I can say now, right, some whatever years later, 16 years later, looking back, I can say this, that God had it totally in control in his plan and it would happen. And if that's true 16 years ago, how much more true is it today? And in fact, God's plan was the best plan and a good plan. Because for me in that 27, 28 year old version of myself, the one thing that I wanted more than anything was what I get to do right now. It was to be a pastor, pastor a church and preach and teach and be able to lead a church and lead a congregation and all of those things. And the 27 year old version of me, thought I was fit and thought I was ready and I wasn't. And in fact, some of my own motives had to be changed and called out that I could see Jesus as the means to an end and the end wasn't Jesus, but the end was a ministry position and a title. People call me Pastor Andy and I got to exercise my spiritual gift every week. Oh my gosh, what a great thing that would have been. And God had to take me down a path and take me down a road over 10 years and put me in the sewers Take me to the end of myself where I could come to the place to say, Jesus is enough. Jesus, even if you never fulfill my destiny, right? My plan, my purpose, even if you never 
fulfill that. I'm okay with that because you are enough. I almost felt like when I could really honestly pray that prayer in my heart that Jesus said, okay. And here we are. Here we are. That's better than my wildest imaginations. That if God would have given me, like write out exactly what you want to be, do what kind of church, like your faces may not be there. It would have been some people, maybe a little prettier. I don't know, but it's this. It is this. And where you are today, It may be in a place where Jesus is taking you down a path and Jesus is taking you down a road so that he can grow you and call call those, those idolatrous things out of your heart and sanctify you. This much I know, even in the midst of that, even in the darkest, dirtiest, nastiest pit he put me in, Jesus's love was there every time. Sewage and Jesus, that's what was down in the bottom of that, every time. And the same thing is true for you. The same thing is true for you. There's two men in close proximity. We'll close with this. There's two men in close proximity to Jesus at this table. This is an observation that uh, Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh made. And I love, I love Bob and his observations. Brilliant man. And he said this. I cannot miss the fact that G- John has placed two men in close proximity to each other in John chapter 13. Judas... And then Peter, just a few men, men removed. Judas was an unbeliever who betrayed the Lord of glory. Peter was a believer who denied his Lord. What is the difference between the two? What is the difference between Judas and between Simon Peter? All the difference in the world. In some ways, Judas looks like Mr. Perfect in the New Testament. Up until the time that he betrays our Lord, but over and over again in the Gospels, it's Peter who seems to be messing up, doing or saying uh, the wrong thing. Remember in last week's text, right, uh, we saw that with Peter. Peter, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. We know at one point even Jesus calls Peter Satan. He's not filled with Satan, but he calls him Satan. Satan, get thee behind me. But while Peter often sinned, each occasion of sin was for him a point of repentance and return. How quickly Peter repents of his foolishness in chapter 13. I'm not gonna let you wash my feet, but then Jesus says, you can have no share with me, Peter, unless I do it. Then wash all of me, Peter exclaims next. It is true that Peter failed Jesus many times, just as you and I do. But each failure was a point of return. For Judas, his apparent failures seemed to be few. But in spite of all the opportunities he was given to repent and to turn to the Lord, he never did. Far better to fail often and to return to the Lord than to appear to do well and never turn to him at all. What a difference there is between Peter, whose sins were a point of return, and this final sin of Judas which was his point of no return. I say that to you today. Which one will you be like? Will you be like Simon Peter who finds yourself in sin, making mistakes often, but returns to Christ? Or are you like Judas? When John so aptly puts it that, and it was night. Is it night in your heart? I pray that it isn't. I pray that there would still be opportunity of light of Jesus shining in your heart that you may return 
to Jesus. You may come and you may confess your sin. You may come and you may fall at the feet of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for, thank you for your great love that you have for us. Your great love that's been displayed in the gospel and what we're about to observe. We give you thanks for that, Jesus. We give you thanks, Lord, that it reminds us of your love, that we don't have to question whether or not you love us. Are we included into the disciples whenever you said you loved us to the full, you loved us to the max? We can look here at what this bread represents, what this juice represents, and we can be reminded that that does include us, that the the cross is for, the gospel is for anyone, whosoever that will hear, any whosoever that will heed, whosoever that will receive. I pray even today, Lord, there may be some in our midst who, who are the spiritual hypocrite. They profess one thing in here. They sing songs. They serve on a team. But they have hidden sin. And they want to pretend like that sin is no big deal. They want to pretend as if they're in control of that sin, whether it's greed or lust or worldliness, whatever else it may be. And the truth of Scripture is, whenever we are walking into unrepentant, unmortified, when we're walking knowingly into sin, that it does open us up. It makes us vulnerable to Satan's devices and Satan's schemes. That sin is like the strings on a puppet. And Lord, you have come, as you said, Jesus, this blood, this broken body, it sets us free. Free. Doesn't mean we'll never sin again, but we can be like Simon Peter who returns to your side and confesses and is cleansed and endeavors, endeavors to live with new faith and new assurance and walk in obedience. And so Jesus, I pray that you would superintend this moment as we come and as we observe your supper. In your name we pray. Amen.